So Punchinello the puppet lives in a world of golden stars and grey dots. Because in his world, whenever you do something right, something good, something clever or something funny, then someone sees and they stick a golden star on you. And so, of course, some people are covered in golden stars. The pretty ones with the smooth wood and the fine paint. The talented ones, the strong ones, those who knew big words, those who could sing well. And every time you got a star, it made you feel good. It made them want to get another star. And so some people are covered in golden stars. But others only get grey dots. Others like Punchinello, he, he tried to jump high, but when he jumped, he always fell. And they would gather around him and stick grey dots on him. Sometimes when he fell, his wood would get scratched, and so people would give him more grey dots. Then he would try to explain why he had fallen, and it would come out all wrong, and they would give him even more grey dots. After a while, he had so many, he didn't even want to go outside. He was afraid he would do something silly. People would laugh at him, maybe forget his hat or step in the water, and then people would give him another grey dot. Sometimes people just came and stuck grey dots on him because he had so many grey dots. Punchinello is the creation of the American pastor and author Max Lucado. Some of you who are parents may well have come across him. The world that he imagines, the world that he brings to life, the story that he writes, it's not so far from ours, is it? A world where people assess and mark and compare and judge each other. And when we do something good, then it's fine. But when we don't, then it's not. Maybe we can't jump as high. Maybe we're not so clever or so pretty or so eloquent or so successful. And it might not be grey dots, but maybe it's those imagined black marks, the, that look, the roll of the eyes again, the, the comment when we've gone. A world of seeking to impress, a world of looking down on each other. And the trouble is, in lots of ways, our hearts are wired like that, and so it's not just out there. It's how we do stuff in here. If you're here this morning as a guest or a visitor, uh, maybe just looking in on Christian things, you need to know that we as a church are a work in progress. In some ways, this is still a place of grey dots and golden stars. So these last few weeks to help us think through that, we've been working through a series called Pharisees Anonymous. It's an opportunity for us to look at various passages Help us to see some of the aspects, the traits of of this zealous religious group that Jesus came across again and again, the the Pharisees. And we've recognised that they look uncomfortably like us. That embarrassing tendency to care more about what others think of us and to impress externally rather than internally serving God. And so we're at the end of the series and we're in this story that for some of you will be very familiar. It's a story of a, of a young man who, who says he wants to, to leave. He shames his father, he shames his family, he asks for his inheritance early. He runs away to another country. He blows it all on wild living and when, when the money's gone and the famine has come, 
he comes to his senses in a pig pen. And he heads back home. And he sorts out his I'm sorry speech. But before he can even get there, the father comes running. He's been looking for him on the horizon. And he spots him. And he hitches up his gown and he runs with arms open wide. But we're not going to think about him today. We're going to think about the older brother. Do you remember when Daniel read it? There were two groups who were listening into the story. Verse 1, now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear him. But the Pharisees and teachers of the law muttered, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. So the younger son, they're the tax collectors and the sinners. People who thought they were too far gone, too many skeletons in the closet. God wouldn't care about them. But the older son, the muttering, mithering, complaining Pharisees and teachers of the law, they are up in arms with Jesus, sitting around with these these sinners, having dinner parties with them. Doesn't he know who they are? And so to them, Jesus tells the story of the older son. And the words that he puts into the mouth of the older son are, are few. But it seems to me they are masterful in the way that he he diagnoses what it means to be a Pharisee. You see, how you relate to God reveals what you believe about him. In his famous book, Tim Keller um, mentions, it's called The Prodigal Son. He says, and it's very clear, both sons are lost. Both sons are lost. We can easily overlook that. It's obvious for one because he's sat there in a pig pen. The other one, though, he's been working so hard for the father, he's lost too. So pick up the story at verse 21 again. He's just arrived home, and he blurts out his practice speech. The son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you, and I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father cuts him off and said to the servants, quick, bring the best robe and put it on him, put a ring on his finger, sandals on his feet, bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate, for this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And so they began to celebrate. So status restored with a robe and a ring. Celebration started, an enormous party for the whole community. Very good news all round, unless you're a fattened calf. Or as it turns out, unless you're the older brother. So far in Jesus' story, the limelight has been hogged by the younger brother. The older brother, the firstborn, has been strangely quiet, maybe even too quiet. So people say, well, should he have spoken up and rebuked his brother at the start when he disrespected his father and asked for his inheritance early? Or did even the older one receive the inheritance early as well? From the beginning, it says that the inheritance was divided between them, so it's possible. But the spotlight moves onto the older brother. The music's just started. The DJ's there with some dance floor fillers. And verse 25, the older son was in the field. When he, heard, when he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he, is, he has him back safe and sound. And rather than sharing the excitement and obvious joy of the father, he is livid. 
that sort of party, that sort of music, can only mean one thing. And the servant confirms it. He, he is livid just like Pharisees and teachers of the law as they see Jesus hanging around at dinner parties with tax collectors and sinners. So we're going to look at verse 28 to 32 this morning. And if there is a disease of Phariseeism, we're going to think about five symptoms from those verses. If we want to spot whether we have this disease, what sort of things ought we to look for? First one, fierce anger. Verse 28 And we can point the finger at the younger son at the start of the the story and say he he shames and he disrespects his father. And it's outrageous behaviour. But the older son is no better. Because he shames and he disrespects his father by not coming in, by forcing his father to go out of the party, to go and plead with him at the end. And why is he angry? Well, because the beautiful story of the gospel is that God is gracious and kind and generous. He is merciful, even to the people that we struggle with, the people that we don't like, the people that we think are too far gone. And if you don't believe that God is gracious and kind and merciful, then you will try to make yourself look righteous. And you will have to prove that you are always in the right And you will become angry if that is threatened. And you might be a loud shouter or you might be a quiet bubbler. But self-righteous anger will never be that far away when your back is against the wall. And it's as if the work of the older brother has counted for nothing. He's put in the hours. He's signed up to the rotors. He has worked hard. He has spent time looking after people. And he deserves a reward for that, or at least some kind of public acclamation. The other one has squandered it all. And he's being congratulated? What utter injustice. Obviously, the father's not read the right parenting manuals. Younger son being shown preferential treatment once again, say all us older brothers. And yet that is the outrageous scandal of God's grace, because it means if you've been out in the field day day after day after day looking to earn God's favour, then frankly you have wasted your life. Because you see, it's not just God's justice that make people angry. It's his grace too. It's his forgiveness You try telling that family member of yours who's not a Christian and yet is so incredibly kind and generous that nothing they can do will make them right with God. You try telling people in Oxford that if the bullfinch seven truly repented, then God would accept them. You write that into the Oxford Mail this week and see the the results that come back in the letter section. No, no, they want bad and rotten people to get what they deserve. Immoral, dirty sinners, traitorous tax collectors. They need to pay for what they've done. But the problem is, when we demand justice, then we find ourselves condemned. Because our hearts are rotten. 
and because we deserve God's justice. So fierce anger. Forgive my alliteration. Second one, formulaic obedience. Verse 29. It's the language of oppression and servitude. But he answered his father, Look, all these years I have been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. Look at how hard he's worked for the father. Look at how little he's been appreciated. He's put his dad's business first. He's late nights, early mornings. He's not bothered with holidays. He's worked and slaved and laboured and toiled. And it seems his dad doesn't even care about it. His dad has been sat there at the front window looking out for the younger one to come back. Does that sound fair? And so you can almost understand the shift in verse 29 because he moves from being a son to being a slave. He doesn't want a father of unconditional love that accepts the prodigal back. He wants a father of conditional love. He loves those who perform well and who work really hard. One writer put it like this. Imagine a woman who cooks for a family. They are ungrateful and unkind. They pay her a pittance of a salary and they always threaten to sack her if her work is not up to standard. And for her, work is drudgery And it is duty. Now imagine a young bride. Radiant. Full of love for her husband. And her husband is attentive and kind and gentle and loving. Now how does she cook him a meal? What's her attitude? Drudgery? Duty? No, no, formulaic obedience, joyless duty will characterise us if we think of God as an uncaring boss. But if we think of him as a gracious father, then it will be joyful service. So if I might ask you, how are you doing as a Christian? How, How am I doing as a Christian? How do you find the serving one another at church, the nitty gritty of looking after each other? What words would come to mind as you think through that? Joyful? Privileged? Willing? Excited? Obliged? Cynical? Jaded? Disillusioned? It's so easy to be like this older brother, lose sight of who God is and why we serve him, and before you know it, the delight goes out, And the drudgery and duty comes in. And yet God loves us. He loves his people. He loves you. He is gracious and generous and good. And he runs to us with with arms open wide. And it's from that foundation that we serve. Not to make him love us, not to get stuff from him but because he loves us. And because he loves us, so we love others. And so we're sons, not slaves. Just one thing to be careful of, though. 
And that is that hard work is not necessarily bad. The problem of the older brother was not the hard work, but it was the motive behind it, his attitude towards his father. And yet it's, it's fair to say in some churches it's trendy to say, well, if you're working too hard and doing lots of stuff, and obviously you're religious, meant in a bad way, rather than being a Christian. But not everything that involves effort amounts to legalism. The Apostle Paul will use the language of soldiers and athletes and farmers, and the Christian life is hard work. To daily go the way of the cross is not easy. The problem's our motives. Why are we doing what we're doing? Is it to make God love us or because he loves us? Because he's our Father. So formulaic obedience. Thirdly, a frostiness to younger brothers. You see, if older brothers think they're okay because of what they've done, because they've earned it, because they've performed, then by nature they will struggle with younger brothers. And so verse 29, look, all these years I've been slaving for you, never disobeyed your orders, yet you never gave me even a, a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. He's He's a box ticker. He's a guy who has been having a mental note of all the stuff that he's done, building up his case. I've always done as you've asked me. I've ticked every box you've given me. He's trying to prove to himself, to his father, the status that he has. And this younger brother, what has he done for you? Seriously, look at him. What has this younger brother done? He has disobeyed you and he has shamed you. Has he been good enough? Has he worked as hard as me? And in all of life, there are people who are trying to perform day after day after day and trying to to prove themselves, to prove that they deserve to exist. In the workplace, by, by working very hard and climbing the ladder very quickly, and your class getting better results than the others, and you being more organised and gifted administratively and noticed and thanked, and, and that's what you want, just to get ahead, just to prove to yourself, prove to others. Proving themselves at home by having a spouse, by having lovely kids who always behave so perfectly and get extra good grades and will go to the right universities, or a tidy house, Or so you're known as an amazing host, having lots of nice stuff, proving themselves. Proving themselves at church. Someone who's known as somebody who's pastorally wise, who really helps others, who's utterly reliable and a great leader and a great musician and a great preacher and a great Bible study leader. We don't have to prove ourselves. And the problem is when we do try and prove ourselves, the context, as we've seen week on week, is always other people. Just like the Pharisee and the tax collector. Just like Simon and the immoral woman last week. So naturally, we want to make sure that we're just a bit better than them. And so it seems that he paints his younger brother in the nastiest possible way, pointing out potential grey dots that he might have imagined. Verse 30 
we hadn't heard anything of prostitutes. Is it that he's painting his younger brother in the worst possible light? Just showing the, the, his, his negativity in a way that's not even there. When this son of yours has squandered your property with prostitutes come home, you kill the fattened calf for him. Where does he get prostitutes from? And as well as his younger brother, he seems to even look down on his father. He doesn't say, my brother comes home. He says, your son. When your son comes home, if other people look bad, then you look better. If my brother and my dad, they're brought low, that just pushes me up a bit. And those younger brothers who come to church and pray and sing and smile every week and then look what they do when they leave here. Those younger brothers in grey dots with very few golden stars. And we look at ourselves and we see our golden stars and we look at them and see their grey dots. And we count and compare. A frostiness to younger brothers. Fourthly, a famine of assurance I think I said not so long ago when we were back in Birmingham, we were doing a Christianity Explored course, which is a sort of basics of the Christian faith, looking through Mark's Gospel. And we came to that point in the course where, I don't know if you've done it before, but Rico Tice, who's the guy who, who wrote it and does some of the stuff, he asked that question. Um, if you were to die tonight, would you be allowed into heaven? Would God let you in? And, and if so, Why? And there was a lovely old lady at the church who had been there for many years, decades, but she was doing this course with some of the others. And we asked her that question in a small group, and she said, I think it's 50-50. I'm just not sure. You see, she was living in a world of golden stars and grey dots, and she just wasn't sure she'd done enough. She had never quite grasped the cross. And so you just sense in this older brother that he's got no assurance. He's just not convinced of his relationship with his father. Verse 29, green eyes, he blurts out, you never threw me a party. Why wouldn't you throw me a party? He just doesn't know where he stands. He doesn't know if he's done enough. He doesn't know if he's loved. Because for as long as we're seeking to impress God through golden stars... How do you know if you've got enough golden stars? How do you know if that's you? That kind of a heart. Maybe it's every time something goes wrong in your life and you wonder, is this just God punishing me? If only I'd read my Bible a bit more. If only I'd taken that opportunity to talk to that colleague at work about Christ, then then that wouldn't have happened. I'm sure he wouldn't have let that happen to me. Maybe it's that guilt that you can't shake. And if only I could repent more deeply and you beat yourself up about it to prove how sorry you are to God. And then I'm sure God will forgive me. Maybe it's just that consistent distance from God, the lack of assurance. You, you pray lots and you've got lists, but you just don't sense that he, he loves you. You feel more like a slave than a son. Just no assurance. 
we were learning in the week with Andy Robinson from Woodstock Road Baptist Church who was coming to teach the ministry trainees and the staff team about John Wesley. You might have heard this, but when he began his ministry, he had this very unhelpfully skewed in his mind. So listen to this from one of his biographies. He and his friends visited the inmates of the prisons and workhouses of Oxford. They took pity on the slum children of the city, providing them with food and clothing and education. They observed Saturday as the Sabbath, as well as Sunday. They went to church and to the Holy Communion. They gave alms. They searched the scriptures. They fasted and prayed, but they were bound in the fetters of their own religion. For they were trusting in themselves, but that they were righteous. Instead of putting their trust in Christ Jesus and him crucified. And so when John Wesley writes later on, he says he had no assurance. Despite years of missionary work in North Africa, he says he was not a son. He returns back to the UK and he's at a service in in London, a little church. And in his own words, Wesley says he came to trust in Christ and in Christ only for salvation. He said later on that I had even then the faith of a servant and not that of a son. When it's all about what you do, when it's all about golden stars, how do you know if you've got enough? How can you tell? Fifthly, an unforgiving spirit. The final symptom and the bottom line is that elder brothers struggle to forgive. You see, if we're fundamentally always thinking, well, I would never act like that, and I would never do that kind of stuff, and how could they say that? Then we hold grudges, and we cling on to past hurts for months and years and decades, and it divides families and it ruins lives. Older brothers struggle to forgive. But the good news of grace is it doesn't work like that. Because we each stand at the foot of the cross and we are ashamed and we are broken and we are ruined and we are aware of our sin and we are exposed and we are vulnerable. But we're welcomed and accepted and we're loved and we're forgiven and we're shown mercy and we are secure. They're the truths we we must grasp onto when we realise our hearts are like Pharisees. And so then we come to the cross, we can be honest about our sin, we're welcomed with arms open wide and we are forgiven and shown grace and so then we forgive and show grace to others. unforgiving spirit look at one thing with me as we draw to a close verse 31 and 32 my son the father said you are always with me and everything I have is yours but we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again he was lost and is found dot 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 we don't know how it ends It is left tantalisingly open for us. The previous two stories in the chapter, lost coin and lost sheep. Well, something gets lost and someone goes to search. 
But this story seems different. Because the teachers of the law and the Pharisees were the recipients of this parable. And I take it Jesus told it because he loved them. He wanted them to see that they were lost. And so who's searching? Jesus. Will they come into the party? Will they recognize that they are lost and that they need him? That actually they're not slaves, but sons. And the jury is out. We know from elsewhere in the Bible that some of the Pharisees, like Nicodemus, did come to the party, did follow Jesus. Joseph of Arimathea, in Acts 15, the council in Jerusalem, you read of a group of Pharisees, or even someone like Paul. They recognised their lostness, their need of forgiveness, their grace, that they weren't to slave. The way that Punchinello ends is very sweet. He, he solves this problem of golden stars and grey dots and assurance and image and comparisons and judging each other because he remembers who he is as he meets his maker afresh. And he sees it's not about slaving in the fields and trying to impress. It's, it's knowing who you are. For us, that's knowing that we're lost, but that Jesus receives us all. And so he says to us, come home. Pharisees, come home. Come into the party. Come to the Father who loves you and forgives you and shows you grace upon grace upon grace. And stop trying to earn like a slave. And come and be a son.